Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to the Brian Danesburg Podcast, Christian Living in a Complicated World. I'm your host, Brian Danesburg, lead pastor of Alliance Bible Church located in uh, downright balmy southeast Wisconsin, balmy for February anyway. Uh, Today, we're diving into... (laughs) Phones, smartphones, smart devices. We've got to talk about this. I want to set this up to try to create a sense in you of why um, why we've got to do more proactive thinking about our use of these things. 30 years ago, did you think phones would be a dominant part of everyday life? I'm thinking about my own life. Even 20 years ago, I I didn't think phones would possess such a dominant presence in our lives today. In fact, when you think about it, to call them phones is a misnomer. They're not phones. A phone is something you use to make a phone call. Our phones are cameras, movie-making devices, publication hubs. Uh, They're what you use to pay the electric bill. Deposit checks, schedule and conduct teledoc appointments. Nearly every bit of information ever recorded in the history of the world is on the phone. When is the last time humanity incorporated something into its daily existence that was this prevalent? I think the smart device revolution is on par with the discovery and use of electricity or the combustion engine, the printing press. Something that is that integrated into daily functioning is going to impact us in remarkable ways. It is changing us. So I'm going to talk about four ways your phone is changing you. And yes, the vast majority of this is pretty negative because I think on par, it's doing more harm than it is doing good. That's not to say that phones can be used in positive ways, in productive ways, in ways that promote flourishing. But I don't think we're, we're winning that battle. So yes, most of this is negative and most of it has to do with how we're using it. The problem necessarily isn't with the device itself as much as how we are using it. Four ways your phone is changing you. Number one, phones feed narcissism. Phones feed narcissism. The ability to attract and receive digital high fives and pats on the back through highly selective self-representation, because that's what's happening. That's what we're doing with it. Um, It's it's selective self-representation. The ability to attract this sort of praise has become intoxicating. And all this is accomplished through a phone. Take a picture of anything. Take a picture of yourself, your report card, your new car, your new figure, your new teeth, your manicured nails or whatever. Post it online and wait for the strokes to come in. (laughs) There's this sort of commodity index of likes and shares. Now, there's no doubt we all crave approval. It is true. Everyone needs encouragement, certainly. But social media sets up an ecosystem where we can receive an inordinate amount of it. Well, there's a word for receiving an inordinate amount of likes, loves, and follows. That word is called worship. 
And there's a word for one who receives this, God. When this recurs enough, our actions shape our self-perception. We may never call ourselves a God, but our interior belief system has been shaped shaped to think we are. But this is not worship, and we are not gods. When, when that sort of action takes place with us, it's hubris. It's pure hubris. And pride is toxic. According to the Bible, pride causes fights and quarrels. I wonder if there's a connection between the proliferation of smart devices and the exponential growth of outrage culture. Pride causes us to be easily offended. And so I wonder if there's a connection between the proliferation of smart devices and just how sensitive and touchy our society has become, even to the point of redefining terms like violence along emotional lines rather than physical lines. Pride causes us to neglect those in need. We are not becoming more charitable. Dr. Gene Twenge defines iGen as those born between 1995 and 2012, she notes that while this generation is very quick issuing statements supporting justice and opposing injustice, they are very slow to physical action. They're skilled at bringing awareness, but they are not skilled at getting involved. This generation is more neglectful of those in need on par compared to other generations. So connected Sure, probably. Pride leads to disgrace for the prideful. So the, the, the consequences, according to the Bible, of pride are, are nearly limitless. The, the digital world is an incubator of narcissism. And one of the disastrous results of this is a distorted view of the self. And so I think our interplay with these devices is a greenhouse for self-deception. Our constant engagement with our devices prevents us from seeing ourselves accurately, and so we lose a handle on reality. Years ago, Daniel Borston asked an insightful question. He asked this, Is your heart set on becoming a celebrity in this life or a hero in the next? Is your heart set on becoming a celebrity in this life or a hero in the next? Do you want your approval now, or are you willing to wait wait for a crown? Don't live for the praises of human beings. The likes, the loves, the shares, the follows are overrated. The approval they offer is worthless compared to the approval the humble, faithful servant of the Lord will receive from him on the last day. Is your heart set on becoming a celebrity in this life or a hero in the next? So one of the things I think the phone is doing is it is feeding our narcissism. Second thing our phones are doing is fueling conformity. This is the corollary of narcissism. On the one hand, we try to stand out. That's how the likes and loves come our way. On the other hand, no one likes or loves something that doesn't conform to their palate. It's an interesting paradox. For example, a teen may present himself or herself with jet black hair, dark eyeliner, and a black wardrobe. This fashion statement may be an attempt to stand out, but more important is an attempt to fit into the goth subculture. And we all do this. We all wear costumes to meet the approval of certain subcultures because the paradox of the matter is that in our search for individuality is a search for conformity. 
One of the most powerful cultural artifacts that illustrates this took place back in the 1990s with famed basketball star Michael Jordan. Many of you will remember this. Gatorade launched a marketing campaign with a catchy tune containing the lyrics, Like Mike, I want to be like Mike. <laughs> Can you hear the tune? This ad campaign was influential. I mean, how many kids starting wearing his shoes, mimicking his moves, and winning imaginary championships? In a device-saturated world, this marches forward at breakneck speed. The trends, the styles, and the symbolic gestures seemingly change as fast as the news cycle. But with devices in, our, in all our hands, we're bombarded with images and reels of these things, all clamoring for us to adopt them into our repertoire. <laughs> but who decides what, ought to, what we ought to conform to? You ever ask that question? Who decides what you're supposed to conform to? The trend creates an expectation that you're supposed to conform to something, but who's deciding that? Who decides what is palatable to the crowd that demands conformity? The power and pressure of these cultural tides is frightening to think about, and it may work against what God calls us to. What do the scriptures teach about conformity? You can do a word search on it. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be conformed to the image of Christ. That's not a bad personal mission statement to adopt when engaging with our devices. I'm going to utilize this device to guard against conforming to the patterns of this world and instead use this device to help me be conformed to the image of Christ. If that's the purpose of this device, how should I be using it? Probably very differently than we currently are. So phones feed narcissism. They fuel conformity. There's an intense pressure that comes at us through our devices to conform to something arbitrary, often not rooted in scripture. Third, phones are damaging our literacy. (laughs) phones are damaging our literacy. Is Google making us stupid? That was a question that Nicholas Carr posed in a celebrated Atlantic monthly cover story. And uh, that story, when he wrote that, it tapped into a well of anxiety about how the internet is changing us. And he also crystallized one of the most important debates of our time, As we enjoy the internet's bounties, are we sacrificing our ability to read and think deeply? He expands his argument uh, into the most compelling exploration, at least I think, most compelling exploration of the internet's intellectual and cultural consequences. Um, As he describes how human thought has been shaped through the centuries by what he calls tools of the mind, quote, tools of the mind. That's the the terminology he used to describe this. What he means by there are things like the alphabet, uh, maps, the printing press, the clock, the computer. As As he documents this, he interweaves a fascinating account of recent discoveries in neuroscience. Our brains, the 
historical and scientific evidence reveals, change in response to our experiences. The the technologies we use to find, store, and share information can literally reroute our neural pathways. Building on the insights of thinkers from Plato to McLuhan, Carr makes a convincing case that every information technology carries with it a quote-unquote intellectual ethic that is a set of assumptions about the nature of knowledge and intelligence. And he explains how the printed book served to focus our attention. It does serve to promote deep and creative thought. In stark contrast, Carr argues, the internet encourages the rapid, distracted sampling of small bits of information from many sources. Its ethic is that of the industrialist, you know, an ethic of speed and efficiency, of optimized production and consumption. And now the internet is remaking us in its own image. We are becoming ever more adept at scanning and skimming. But what we are losing is our capacity for concentration, contemplation, and reflection. Matthew Crawford put it provocatively. He writes, distractibility might be regarded as the mental equivalent of obesity. And this is what our devices have done. They have made distractibility the norm. We might say that our culture, because of our engagement with these devices, has become intellectually obese. And this really cuts against the grain of what the Bible itself tells us about how to engage with it. The Bible actually tells us how we're supposed to engage with it. How are we supposed to do that? Meditatively. (laughs) The clues the Bible gives us about how to read it would suggest we're meant to linger over it, not skim it. But if the research is correct and phone use is indeed changing our brain and neural pathways, and they are making it more difficult to sustain any kind of reflection, we're going to struggle to read the Bible in the manner it prescribes, in the manner that proves most beneficial to us. So it is working against our literacy. Fourth, and finally, phones are causing depression. Um, I have a file on this that has become vast very quickly. I mentioned earlier Dr. Jean Twen. She's a professor of psychology at San Diego State University. She wrote a book called iGen, uh, and I gave you their dates uh, when I mentioned her earlier. She wrote a book called iGen. Here's a subtitle. The subtitle is Why Today's Superconnected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood, and What That Means for the Rest of Us. One of the things that sparked Dr. Twenge's study was the apparent dramatic increase in mental health issues in teenagers. And unless you've been living under a rock for the past five to seven years, you have probably heard a lot about mental health during that period of time, particularly in teenagers. Numerous studies, including twinges, have shown that there has been a dramatic increase in mental health crises starting in around 2011. What happened then? (laughs) That's really when the smartphone began to be proliferated, 
social media use, all that stuff. Twenge wanted to know why there was this happenstance, this correlation. And she finds that there are just two activities that are significantly correlated with depression and other suicide-related outcomes. The two activities are electronic device use, smartphones, tablets, computers, and watching TV. On the other hand, Twenge discovered there are five activities that have inverse relationships with depression. Meaning, kids who spend more time doing these activities show lower rates of depression. Sports and other forms of exercise, attending religious services, reading books, doing homework, and in-person social interactions. Okay, so two activities correlated with depression, electronic device use and watching TV. Five activities that have inverse relationships with depression. That is, kids who spend time doing these things show lower rates of depression. That's sports and exercise, attending religious services, reading books, doing homework, and in-person social interactions. Now, Twenge isn't saying anything unique. Study after study after study is noting the correlation between device use maybe more specifically social media use, and depression and suicide rates. There was a 10-year study out of BYU uh, that came, uh, came out showing elevated suicide risk from excess social media time for young uh, teen girls. Studies put out by the CDC as well as researchers in the UK have noted the same thing. Now, of course, and I mentioned this already, one has to ask the question, what are people feeding on when they're using their devices? On one level, it's simply not deep enough to say phones are causing depression. We have to dive into what people are consuming when they're on their device. But even if we did, we don't necessarily know that it's avoidable. In other words, the phone and the content may be inextricably linked. Perhaps there's another time we could dive into this, but I think there's a strong correlation between depression and desire for and pursuit of self-amazement. God didn't wire us up to find joy in beholding a great self. I don't go to the Grand Canyon to behold a great self. I don't go to the beach to behold a great self. I don't go to the mountains to behold a great self. God wired us to find joy, peace, contentment in beholding a great wonder outside ourselves, namely Him. And we best provide the incomparable spectacle of his great wonder through nature and his word, the scriptures. So I think the course correction here with this one is simply to pay careful attention to what you allow into your mind. Your mind, remember, is like a vacuum cleaner that's always on. Everywhere you go, your mind is sucking up stuff. So when you spend four hours scouring the internet on your phone, When you check the vacuum bag, what's in it? Thoughts of the Lord, good, wholesome, positive stories, clean humor? Probably not. So what if your phone is psychologically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually abusing you? Most of what your phone offers you is abuse. Your mind is a precious thing. Treat it with dignity. Limit the use of your phone.
Andy Crouch has written a fantastic book I recommend to you all, The TechWise Family. I think it's in the notes uh, below. The TechWise Family, Andy Crouch, excellent, excellent work. Let me close with, with his suggestion, which is a personal practice for his family. He writes this, We are designed for a rhythm of work and rest. So one hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year, we turn off our devices in worship, feast, play, and rest together. This is what his family does. So one hour every day, all the devices are off. One day a week, all the devices are off. And one week a year, all the devices are off. And they use that time as a family to worship, feast, play, and rest together. I wholeheartedly endorse that approach. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.